Hello, everyone, and welcome to DM Discussions, episode 82, the podcast for players and DMs alike, where we cover a wide variety of topics to help you with your games. I'm your host, Ryan Reeder, and with me, as always, is my good buddy, Ben Belhoffer. How are you doing this evening, Ben? I am doing so much better than last time. It is, uh, you know, a very good thing that I can actually talk without coughing every five seconds now. So I am psyched. I am ready to go. And I am extra excited for this episode. We have a guest tonight. So excited. Uh, Dr. Emily Friedman is joining us tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Yes. Hello from Alabama. Alabama. Hmm. Oh, so we got the uh, we got another. Yeah. Southern Midwest. I'm I'm Missouri myself. I Arizona. went to Missouri. Nice. Oh, I see the yeah the background. Yes. <laughs> big old Mizzou M. Yep. Yep. Oh, good stuff. So Dr. Emily Friedman is an English professor. Yes. Uh, and is currently doing a ton of work around the tabletop RPG sphere as in, I guess, I guess I would say, uh, would you classify it as like specializing in actual plays? This moment in time, as of the time of this recording, <laughs> I am, for better or for worse, the senior ranking scholar in the world studying actual play, uh, which mostly just means that much more young and energetic junior colleagues are doing a lot of this work in a space. Um, and I'm just trying to keep up. Um, but yeah. Uh, that's uh, one of my specialties. I come from a background of a great interest in alternative methods of circulation and art outside of commercial logics and uh, capitalism. And so I have worked on uh, lots of things in my uh, day. And these days, I just can't stop thinking about actual play and what it's become over the last over decade and what it's about to become in this moment of great change. And it's, it's wild. You say that because you said decade, I that's well, if you think I, of, time if you think is of, passing. Oh my yes, gosh. Uh, time is a weird soup. Um, what, what you can, what I realized recently was that actual play, as we think about it as an internet form really started getting ground under its feet the year I started here at Auburn, around 2008-2009. So my entire time uh, as a tenure-track university professor has been immersed in this world, although it's only fairly recently, let's say 2018, that this has been part of my research program, mm -hmm. which okay, is still, so now I know, rather a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Time, time is a weird soup. Um, so, you told us a little bit about your your academia background. What is your what is your tabletop background? Where did you come from in that space? How did you get interested in this specific yeah. topic? Yeah. So, I'm a longtime uh, tabletop player. Um, as a young person in the 1990s. Um, that was, as most folks will know, is kind of the nadir of the widespread popularization of D&D. So D&D was a thing that my older male cousins played, not something that I had access to. I was a White Wolf kid. I was a Steve Jackson Games kid. I was a sad 
pathetic uh, simulacrum of a LARPer. Um, I was a questionable storyteller and GM from time to time. Um, I think by like a lot of people in the 90s, source books were things that we read as much as we played and probably more. Um, that went on a bit of a hiatus in college, and I came back to the hobby really with the rise of fifth edition. Um, I play with a local table of mostly historians uh, who were all male until I overheard them planning at a party uh, to try the new edition. And I said, um, I would like to play. You just invited my friend, the theater professor who knows nothing about this. Why have you not asked me? And they're like, we didn't think you'd be interested because we think you're cool. And I was like, none of this makes sense. <laughs> <gasps> I bullied my way onto this table um, at the very dawn of fifth edition. And we've been playing more or less ever since. Um, we, wow. wrapped, we wrapped a three-year Tomb of Annihilation campaign that I later in retrospect realized was like we started the same time that the Mighty Nine started that campaign and oh. and wrapped not long after. Um uh, so yeah, so um, they are my touchstone for the very offline D&D player um, as a general rule. Uh, and uh, so they're really useful in my research. Um, people who've been playing for, you know, my DM, I think has been playing since he was a teenager. So something along the lines of 30 years. Uh, so we've got multiple different kind of generations, even though we're all basically the same age. Uh, playing D&D at home. And now, of course, I run a bunch of tables myself of a lot of different systems. Um, I'm very interested in kind of thinking about experimental games in my classrooms more than D&D um, because my students come with some kind of background with, of D&D these days, a lot of them. And uh, I really am also just a kind of lifelong board game player alongside. So the table has different kinds of games on it for me. But yeah, yeah. started with with Vampire Changeling and Innomine. The, wow. Yeah, the game where gonna, you play angels and devils. I was going to ask you what your white wolf of choice, your flavor of choice was, because <laughs> they, have, they have quite a few. They do, oh, yeah. they do. Um, but, uh, you know, I... In the same way that I was getting dragged to the only anime store in Houston, Texas, as a teenager by my friends, Vampire was not necessarily my drug of choice, but it was definitely the draw of my, you know, theater kid friends. Oh, yeah, that was my like intro into uh, tabletop, you know, role playing as well. Just uh, all of a sudden it's like, hey, uh, you're coming with us. I'm like, OK, had no idea what I was doing, what was going to happen. And uh, yeah, just ended up being someone's ghoul in, in the first session of uh, Vampire. I'm like, oh, so I don't really get to do much other than just kind of follow along. OK, cool. Yeah, I have very minimal memories aside from um a lot of my friends had very real blades at their disposal, and this was long before any kind of safety tools were part of our vocabulary. So no one was harmed in the playing of these games, but that is the most <laughs> sounds like a like a home. hardcore LARP, LARP. Indeed, it, this was not like kind of boffin sort of LARP by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but still very in the backyard, you know, seven or eight of us kind of deal. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's super cool. <laughs> uh, so I, I wanted to start the conversation 
kind of at the the beginning of of actual plays. Mm. Uh, I I know, and I, I I don't know if you would agree, but Five uh, E really kickstarted a lot of the actual play uh, renaissance. Uh, mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit. Was there was there anything? Was there anything much before that? Uh, of course, the big catalyst one and i'm sure we'll talk about it the the critical role the lightning sure. in a bottle of that but um what have what have you found in that, that yeah space? so so it's a little bit complicated so if you talk to people like evan torner who's the kind of great larp historian um he will tell you that of course actual play has its roots online in recorded play sessions for things like the forge right these are not performance objects they're objects for study the nearest modern equivalent is maybe when matt coville was recording his actual play which was very much non-performative but to show you mechanics at work in a lot of ways I mean, that is that the chain you're, you're referring the chain to yeah, of Acheron, yeah. Mm-hmm. um i won't say it's unwatchable but you're watching it for a different kind of reason than the more performance-based stuff you're watching a game yes. take place yeah um, and you're and just you're like a spectator rather than a yeah very audience. yeah no one's playing to an audience um in that at all very in fact quite the opposite um at the same time offline you have a lot of the people that you would hear about later on on the internet who are active in, for example, the LA improv scene. And Janaya Kemper, um, who's affiliated with Carnegie Mellon, who's a game designer, um, will will tell you about those kinds of days, those early days, those offline days. And so that's part of the kind of culture of nerd LA that becomes the cradle from which things like Geek and Sundry can emerge. But of course, when we think about actual play as a promoter of Dungeons and Dragons specifically, it, it happens with D&D Next, right? And it even actually a little bit fourth edition before D&D Next gets going because the the crux is Acquisitions Incorporated, yeah. right? It's the, mm, that yes, alliance yes. with Penny Arcade. And so, and we know because Penny Arcade making a big, big deal about it at PAX Unplugged in December, this is the 15th anniversary year. And so they're kind of rebooting. But so, you know, that's the kind of timeline that I tend to hang my hat on. There's a lot of other short nebulous things. And there are challenges to talking about some of them. Um, One of the challenges of this work is what do you do when someone's been canceled? Um, They're important to the historical record, how much do you want to or need to give them airspace? especially if they were among the first people. And I certainly have an email inbox full of people who would like to tell me how they were the first people to do something um, and how dare I, which is why I talk about kind of like, you know, the popularization or the touchstones. Like if you Mm -hmm. ask people what their influences are, they're going to point to something like Acquisitions Incorporated and then they're going to, and then the next wave is going to talk about the Adventure Zone and then the wave right after that is going to talk about Critical Role and soon after that Dimension 20. Um, And those those are the big ones. And there are lots of other influences along the way. Um, that are important to talk about, but those are the ones that come up a lot when I talk to people um, of, of who have entered the kind of performance side of the hobby over the last, you know, couple of years. 
Yeah, and I can totally vouch for that too because Acquisitions Incorporated was the the exact first time I've ever heard like an actual play. And I mean, I fell in love with how much fun they seemed to be having. And that's when I started to try and DM fourth edition, which didn't happen a whole lot. But yeah, it was just one of those things like, wow, this is really cool. And then, you know, yeah. I kept seeking out every time they would do, you know, a new uh, episode. And then when they went into, you know, D&D Next and everything, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. And uh, yeah, Critical Role is yeah, what brought me back into the whole thing for fifth edition and and just blew up everywhere, which I mean, it that that progression is definitely something I've experienced immensely throughout this whole thing. Yeah. And what's interesting about Acquisitions Incorporated is they have tried out every form that actual play will ultimately try out, right? They tried a, a TV series where it's edited for time and shot in a in a studio with multiple cameras. They've they started as convention play and recorded convention play. They've been po- or really they started with podcasts, right? Like yeah. um and uh so we've seen and then with the C team which was kind of their longest running element um or at least in terms of volume, we've got uh, you know, the live stream in studio, you've got the live stream um, remote when we make the pivot to online gaming. Um, and uh, and now they're kind of coming for a circle. And it's very, I'm watching with quite interest to see what uh, Ack Inc. thinks its series to needs to be, can be, um, ought to be in the current climate. And of course, that was when Wizards was being a big partner and Wizards then went into kind of investing. And what's striking to me is if you look at that cast for Ack Inc., you don't see an actor in it until you see Will Wheaton. And Will Wheaton, of course, notoriously gets killed off <laughs> with, with a quickness. Um, <laughs> only to come, you know, he comes back in different kinds of ways. But AFL, you know, is not a long-term character. Rest um, in peace, and, that acid pit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and I mean, we could talk all day about Will Wheaton and actual play because there's a lot to be said in terms of what could have been with Geek and Sundry and what wasn't. Um, but, uh, what's, what I find really interesting is, um, that as Wizards started to invest, it was investing in these kinds of grassroots things by and large. Um, you know, people might have certain kinds of training, but they we're welcoming in, you know, podcasts and shows that were being developed by the community. And then when it really took off, uh, we get a pulling back of financial support. And then we also get this interest in celebrity uh, D&D, which is always by definition elementary D&D. Um, and so we come to the end of fifth edition and whatever's coming next is going to be different for any number of reasons, uh, where we've got an experienced player base, people who can call themselves professional TTRBG players. And we could talk and can talk about the weirdness of that term um, and who says it and who doesn't in this space. Um, but we have people who've been playing fifth edition for quite some time and know how to do it extremely well and at a high level. Um, but the desire for wizards to constantly be bringing in new players means that there's this, um, you know, focus on the elementary, um, to the neglect of, uh, longtime players. 
And uh, what an interesting strategy that has turned out to be in the last (laughs) two weeks or so. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I feel like (laughs) it was only yesterday we discussed that last episode. Oh, Uh, man. Apologies to your listeners. This is just the gift that keeps on giving, guys. Oh, man. Yeah, it's uh, we have we have a survey now We're we're waiting. It's it's open. We're waiting to hear back, crossing all our fingers and toes that good and listening uh, and learning <laughs> on the part of Wizards will and Hasbro will will come from that. Yeah, for sure. And, and and quite honestly, for me, as someone who's has a table that's never going to stop playing D&D, but might stop buying D&D um, and has other tables that play everything else. Um, I think what I'm most interested in as a scholar, and I think this is probably different from what you've already talked about, is the impact on actual play. D&D has walked back a lot of the things that would officially impact actual play. And I would argue that a lot of the fan response was in support not only of third party creators creating modules who are the kind of and and supplements who were the main target of these of the OGL changes, but also this sense that these other creators, many of whom are involved in actual play, were potentially going to be negatively impacted. Officially, actual play is covered under the fan content policy, but it is very, very easy to step over the line into stuff that is no longer covered by the fan content policy. So, for example, if you have if a show if a show you like has a ticketed live event that they charge money for and they don't either simulcast it online for free or otherwise release it for free, they are no longer under the fan content policy and they must have a contract with Wizards. Mm. Um And so this is one of the things that people don't know. In fact, some actual play folks don't know. The minute you have D&D content behind a paywall for Patreon, you're in violation of the fan content policy, right? And then you get into the fact that many actual plays aren't making money on Patreon, aren't making enough money on Twitch and YouTube, which are all the kind of acceptable ways to monetize, Mm -hmm. and put out their original material on things like the DMs Guild. And that's where they overlap with the rest of the creative cu- creator culture. So today I was listening to Dungeons and Daddies Patreon podcast, and they were saying that as far as I can tell, they have not consulted with a lawyer, but their understanding of the OGL as it stands is that they're kind of covered, you know, in their in their understanding. And I think they're probably right. Um, for most of the things that they're currently doing, they do have a few a, a few pieces of content that are technically including D and D that are behind a Patreon paywall, um, but not enough for anybody to come after them. However, they have over thirty two thousand Patreons. That is guaranteed to be the kind of revenue that Wizards was originally looking at in terms of the cut that they were originally starting to look at. Um, so we've got this interesting community industry production system that is that runs this spectrum from people who are like, well, I'm on Zoom anyway, so I might as well put my game on Twitch and see if people want to watch me, to highly professionalized um, productions um, to what I call the ambitious middle, the people in between who would like to ha- parlay this into 
something bigger. Um, and sometimes that something bigger means roles uh, on Critical Role and Dimension 20. And we can talk about the viability of that, um, which is to say it is not. <laughs> um, but or just the ability to create their own viable, you know, storytelling apparatus, which is much more viable and possible um, for folks. Uh, and so, yeah, and so what's interesting about this anxiety around the OGL is less about what the OGL is going to do, and it's more about how is it going to shift the audience sympathy for people playing D&D. And that's the big open question. At the moment, most audiences are supporting third-party creators who are continuing to make 5e content for the moment because there's so many things that were still in production. And same deal with actual play. People are willing to uh, deal with the fact that, you know, actual plays take a long time to produce. They're increasingly pre-recorded. For example, Dimension 20 has stuff in the can that won't go out until March. Um, yeah. World Beyond Number, their first campaign is D&D. They're not even starting their Patreon until February 1st. Um, but we do see some signs that there might be some shifts. Uh, Desi Quest successfully kickstarted as an all Desi D&D, but are now saying that they are considering which system to go with. They have created their characters, but they have not rolled stats because they're not sure what system they're going to end up using. And they're going to film really soon. Uh, so and they were originally slated for D&D. Oh, yeah. No, they were the advertised. They were, yeah. pitched, they were pitched as a D&D. I mean, D&D thing that until two weeks ago was a brand that you wanted to associate with if you were creating tabletop actual play mm -hmm. because you can point and say 45 million people play this game this name has you know household brand recognition and now and the question is how toxic has it made it for audiences so far, the Twitch, you know, go on Twitch and you'll still see most people who are watching things in the tabletop category. They're watching things that are tagged with D&D &D, and people are still tagging their stuff D&D, &D, even if they're not necessarily playing D&D 5th edition. So, yeah, it's a mess. And it's yeah. a mess that I don't think is going to resolve for a little while. No, definitely. It's not, moving, it's not moving as fast as the production side of things. Sure. We're not seeing the big orc, cobalt press, you know all of the uh, MCDM, all of that sort of thing. That they, they can pivot because they've been planning for this. Yeah. Uh, actual plays were not planning for this, except for yeah. maybe Critical Role. Yeah, and that's I, I, I think that's that's one interesting thing I wanted to bring up to see what your pulse was. Because my, my first exposure to tabletop RPGs of any kind, because I grew up in, an ex in the extremely conservative uh, state of Tennessee, Bless uh, your heart, as we yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, uh, so that, like, tabletop RPGs, role-playing, uh, the satanic panic, uh, all those types of things uh, hung heavy. And so I was not really exposed until my mid to late 20s when I was browsing Twitch one night and came across this weird critical role thing. And this was either towards the end of geek and sundry when they had the nicer set or just like shortly after the transition. Uh, Cause not I remember the Ikea tables. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not the, not the old white tables and, and them eating like tons of food and stuff. People got, the got comic them, books uh, in the background. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, because I, I remember specifically it was uh they were fighting a Leviathan during Keyless Aramente yeah. West. Uh and I just couldn't look away because it was just so interesting what these people were doing and what they were playing in the system they were using. And it just hooked me. It's like, I want to storytell like that. I want mm-hmm. to have that kind of experience. So that was kind of my, my first, my first breach into, into the hobby. But in a lot of ways, it it, it feels like, and this could just be like the Twitter sphere and stuff. It feels like that the tabletop RPG community is not like, say, the video game community in a lot of ways, as stuff travels faster and it seems more tightly knit. Um, maybe a smaller, a smaller circle as far as big names or something like that. And so I, I kind of wonder, especially with all this this mess with the OGL. Are we seeing just the loud, hardcore people in some of these circles making noise? Or do you think this type of thing will actually affect what general audiences who have been watching would watch going forward? Yeah. I think really interesting question. And I think one is, yes, there are people being loud on the internet because being loud on the internet is remarkably lucrative. (laughs) Um, I can think of some uh, Johnny Come Lately uh, YouTube channels that are really capitalizing on the fact that if you use the word source and uh, say you have a hot scoop, nobody's really going to notice if, you know, a couple hours later you have to retract that shit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, the many, many people of legal YouTube who have decided that they, you know, in contradistinction to the people who think they're IP lawyers who aren't, um, you've got the the lawyers who have no experience in this particular part of the, the field who uh, don't understand the kind of culture and context, which, of course, are very important parts of Huge, especially for um, this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rant over. Um you know, I think, you know, this this is a place that is full of hot takes. And I am a person who prefers my takes um slow braised for and uh covered by <laughs> citations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So uh, you know, I turn to Lynn Kodega and I know that there are lawyers who'll be mad at her if she does not uh uh fact check shit. So that's that's when I know that something is real, quite frankly, um, these days, unless I have my own uh independent confirmation, which has happened some, some from time to time. Um so yeah, I mean there are people who are being loud. And increasingly that that uh is almost leading to uh, the danger of a backlash, right? Mm-hmm. Of people going, oh, now it's drama, right? Now it's now it's not a legitimate concern. And I think there is a certain amount of, uh, I think Lynn said something to the effect of, okay, so where's the line? I think we have a pretty good sense on the line of Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro. Like they want to revise, potentially revoke the OGL. Um, that's their line in the sand. That's the thing they're not going to concede. And then it's the question is for everybody else is where is your line in the sand? And if you're not, if your line in the sand is fixed in such a way that you can't, that you can't, aren't willing to negotiate, 
then go play something else because you the the fight is over for you. You you win by leaving. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I think Matt Coville was saying today, you know, that's what happens. It, that's what happened when people didn't like what happened um, you know, around fourth edition. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were still playing D&D. They weren't spending money on D&D. Um, and I, I, that's I a think, completely legitimate way forward. I think that's oh, yeah. a huge point because mm-hmm. all my five unlike a video game, like an MMO, that they can patch and remove content from and or like a, a He's the old Star Wars Galaxies reference right. when they did the the huge switch over. Um, yeah, yeah, everybody. Not? Yeah, everyone is mad at that. Everyone no, who played you. is mad at that. Uh, um, but they cannot do that with D&D, at least in terms all the printed material I own, all the homebrew stuff I have done, all the third party stuff I have bought won't change. Right. I have it, I own it, and I can continue to use it indefinitely and continue to play 5th play edition indefinitely and never have to buy another first party thing ever again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's the, I mean, and so when it comes to uh, the audience, um, I, I, I think that um, one of the challenges, and this is for true for both Tabletop games more broadly, D&D specifically, and actual play, which feeds on all of it, is um, you have to find new audiences. Actual play really has to find new audiences mm-hmm. um, and has to reach out beyond the scope of people who currently watch, in part because, you know, Critical Role isn't the tide that raises all ships because it's four hours long. Um and uh, Dimension 20 can be the, the tide that raises other ships because it's only, you know, it's got limited series yeah. and they're only two hours. Yeah. Two-ish hours, yeah. 10, 20 episodes. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's the main campaigns, right? They're, they've got, they've, uh, got a stock. In, and I think Critical Role is taking a lot of lessons from Dimension 20. And I think that's why we're seeing these limited series. I think we're going to see more of that. Yeah. I we will definitely know. talk about those yeah. before so, this night anyway, is done. I, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll circle back to this. But I think that the point is, is that the people who are at the vanguard of this form recognize that what they have to do is go find people who aren't consuming this stuff already um, and give them something that's that, that can be of interest duplicating past success is not going to help you because the landscape has changed. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about the origins of Critical Role. Critical Role had front page on Twitch for months in a time where you could do that. Yeah. Um, uh, And that was a really important part of their success. The, the, The availability of other shows, I mean, they were not in competition with uh, Geek and Sundry, they were part of the ecosystem of Geek and Sundry that was producing Mm -hmm. a bunch of stellar actual plays from Shields of Tomorrow to LA by Night and so many more, uh, most of which were not able to achieve, you know, launch escape velocity from what became legendary owned Geek and Sundry because they didn't, weren't able to do what Critical Role did, which was, if you look at the filings, Critical Role became a limited liability corporation before their eighth episode. Um, so they were all they were a collective bargaining unit very, very early on. Wow. Um, 
I mean, let's we're, while we're on the side, let's let's talk about that. Like that's you it it be it would be foolish for us to talk about D&D 5th edition just in general or actual plays without talking about Critical Role because it was such a linchpin and such uh, I I know you've said this lightning in a bottle. Like Everyone I don't you other than to, maybe d- dimension 20 to to an extent I have never seen another actual play series or brand come close. Yeah. Right. And and yeah, and and what Critical Role has been able to do is become a transmedia company. And that's one kind of success. And I don't think there's room in the space for a whole lot of that particular kind of success. The Adventure Zone, the McElroys have a media empire that the Adventure Zone is like a crown jewel, but it's side by side with Mabim Bam and the 10 other family podcasts that Mm -hmm. they run. Mm -hmm. They have extended into transmedia stuff with graphic novel adaptations and a, and I've got, you know, both of their board games behind me and, and those sorts of things, but it's one slice of a very kind of diversified pie. And it's diversified in different kinds of ways because the McElroys come from a radio journalism background. They have one theater kid to their name and they have a lot of other tools, but most of their experience is in radio. Um, So they've crowned themselves the king of podcasting and and God bless. Um, With Critical Role, you've got people who have deep, long experience by the time that they're playing at Geek and Sundry in the video game uh, space, in the animation space, um, and other kinds of acting spaces, obviously, mm-hmm. but you know, primarily those spaces that are already, so they were already coming media trained in what convention and fan culture were like. Um, they had, they'd been around the block for a while. And they, and this was one of many internet kind of experiments that different members of the cast have been part of at different kinds of times. Dimension 20, it draws very heavily from the Upright Citizens Brigade. And so they're trying to make a comedy podcast as part of, you know, the larger work of Dropout, which, you know, has a fascinating history of its own, right? It was, you know, it almost completely died before resurrecting. So and close. this close, yeah. so honestly, close. Dimension Twenty might have saved. Yes, them yeah. I, I, in well, many ways, I mean, when they when everybody got fired, the last person on the payroll was Brennan Lee Mulligan. If I mean, among a couple of other people, but you know, as a creative force, that's important. Um, and so what? But and so what they've diversified into is different kinds of comedy offerings, right? They first and foremost they're uh you know front loading themselves as a comedy system uh and ecosystem that you can can kind of buy into and so that's a different niche that's that can be filled um it's really interesting when you get into podcasts you know podcasts kind of stealth because their stats aren't highly visible in the ways that yeah. um the video based stuff is uh and so what's really been interesting to me is to look at who's got the big Patreons. Um, and there are a few that are hauling in some pretty significant cash month over month. 
um, and enough to make it a viable business. And that's why I'm really interested in what happens with Worlds Beyond Number, um, because that's going to be a thing that Brennan owns and Abria owns and Taylor owns and Erica owns and Lou owns, um, which is very much kind of hearkening back to, hey, remember the last time a group of you know, actors seize the means of production. And this is not to say that Worlds Beyond Number and Critical Role are the only times that an actor collective have formed. Yeah. They form often, actually quite often. Mm-hmm. What What's interesting is that usually there's one person who's kind of the, the conduit for money and logistics, and that can go badly very quickly. Um, and so in that way, critical roles, a miracle in, in many ways. It's, um, yeah. It's mind blowing that uh, yeah, other, other than some of the initial first 20 or 30 episodes, I mean, you talked about that a little bit, um, why there's this group and one less, uh, than, than it originally started out as it's, it's weird. Like that, that just doesn't happen that I mean, often it's, yeah it's a it's a combination of the the platform and where it where that platform was at that moment in time where that game was at that moment in time and the particular people who are all you know ask anybody who's worked with them and they'll tell you these are some of the most charis their chari- charisma is their highest stat um they have maxed it out all each and every one of them in oh, their own far. ways Um, It is, it continues to be fascinating to me that I've had everything from like my 19 year old undergraduates to my extremely straight mid 40s friends and colleagues and everyone in between um, kind of declaring a kind of baffled affection for Liam O'Brien that I think is worth a paper. Um, (laughs) No, in some ways, it absolutely makes sense. In some ways, it makes like on paper, you explain this to people and they, and they, there's no way to get it. But when you have a media property that starts from, you're going to get cozy with these people for four hours every week, and you're going to watch, um, we have a, in narratology, which is one of the things uh, that I do, which is the study of how narratives are structured. Um, Jennifer Grueling, before actual play blew up, talked about the kind of narrative levels and of a home game. And so there's what the dungeon master says and the story that they're narrating. There's what players narrate in character. There's what players say out of character um, in terms of mechanics and things. There's the, el- the narrative element of the dice. And then there's what's called table talk. And grueling says that table talk is the talk that doesn't matter. When I say, hey, can you get me another beer? I would like the Cheetos, no, not the pickled Cheetos that um, Chase brought because he always (laughs) brings something weird, right? Um, And so when you get over into the space of actual play, um, people like Robin Hope, who wrote the first master's thesis on Critical Role, which Matt Mercer read because it was that early on in in all of this, um, and I have have both basically articulated there are a different additional levels, and I think we both agree that when you transform into ta- into actual play, for a lot of the shows, the table talk becomes important. And so even the people that you talk to who edit very intensely, 
um, you know, folks uh, like the editors for Dimension 20, um, Carlos Luna, who works for Roll 20 now and does a lot of editing and production, they'll tell you that there's there's certain there's a certain amount of that what we would call table talk, that stuff that doesn't really matter, but it's part of the camaraderie of the table that you don't edit out um, or that a lot of people don't edit out because it's an additional layer of pleasure. It is pleasurable. I mean, I've written about this. Like, a, like I, a connection point mm-hmm. for the audience. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we can call it, I mean, we can call it the parasocial, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. um, it doesn't necessarily have to be, I am, I think these people are my friends, but it is akin to that kind of idea. So the first thing that I ever published um, for the public as opposed to academic on actual play is it's we're coming up on its anniversary. Uh, it was a Valentine's Day issue of The Rambling, which is an online um, journal for kind of academics who want to write for the public. And uh, I wrote about the end of Critical Role's first campaign. Spoilers ahead. Um <laughs> Uh, you can pause for oh a couple, couple a minute or so, um, but the end of the but the the final part of the campaign, um, which Matt Coville did a video on, which he's now I think delisted, um, where he calls it the climax of Critical Role, and it's that moment that is only noticeable and legible in retrospect, which is Sam has to make a decision. Yeah, mm. he has mm. to do the high level counter spell. If he does that, he burns his ninth level spell, and he's saving it for Wish. And he's the he and Matt are the only people at the table who know that. Um, but and so we watch Sam, right? The man who most of this time you are not expecting to break your heart. That is other people's job. Um, <laughs> Liam O'Brien's job. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, and so he's about to participate in this, right? And so, but he's the one who's laughing on the other side of the table, un- unwitting of what has happened. And so the mm-hmm. and so Sam takes his action, the table keeps moving. We we have that level of players are narrating moves and interacting mm-hmm. with Matt. And then at that table talk level, we can see. Sam looking forlorn, mouthing that he loves Liam and in return and saying and muttering that he was going to save Wish. And as slowly we watch as first Liam realizes what's happening and then he yeah. leans over to Laura and and it's uh, and then chat starts to realize it. And then, of course, because Critical Role is such a show that is as what we call fan information labor, right? Crit Role stats is a big part of this. But also the clipping community, right? That will show you, hey, hey, this is this thing you missed. Mm-hmm. Let's watch it again. Um, let's focus on it. And so, but it's it's this thing that is the emotion. That later on in Talks Machina, uh, in the wrap up, the cast will acknowledge in retrospect is like the big moment of that episode. But it didn't happen live, mm-hmm. or it only happened live for a handful of people. Um, but now you can go back and watch it. And now I don't know anybody who doesn't watch it with that lens, right? We all know, like, if you, if this is not a spoiler for you, you know, this, yeah. scene. no, um, it's, it, it's, I, I, I have never, very few times will I get heartbroken like that watching somebody else play a game. Like there, there, I, I could probably count on maybe, maybe both my hands, the, the amount of times that, that, that is, that has happened. And, uh, cause I remember watching that Matt Coville video 
and he breaks it down so well and intersperses it with the clips and you see that and you see when liam realizes that sam just gave up that opportunity to keep vecna from escaping mm-hmm. and like you can just see his posture change from jovial to oh my gosh i can't believe what you just did yeah, it's almost for immediate. me yeah and it, you, it's it's but it's, again the parasocial stuff like that i am empathizing with those players and characters at the same time i'm watching at a level that i wouldn't do for like a movie that I mean, I think what we, we when we talk about critical role in particular, and I think this is emulated by by other by other shows that are thinking the way in in the kind of savvy ways critical role is. And this is not to say that critical role is fake, um, but to say that you've got two levels of performance happening, um, and one level is the level that we're familiar with, which is they are perform they are being act they are being they are actors playing roles, mm-hmm. but there's also um, this kind of uh, ability to watch the actor at work and, and that improvisation gives us. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about, especially as we think about, you know, the legend of Vox Machina is there's a couple of things you lose when you adopt the actual play. First of all, hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, but that, that's, that's, that's fine, quite frankly. Um, but it makes it more... Relate. Uh, um, what's what's the word? Uh, accessible. Accessible. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Um, Accessibility yeah, so, key. So, yeah. No. I mean, I think this is this is the quintessential move to bring in new audiences, and I can tell you from the emails that I get from my colleagues that absolutely it is bringing in people who would otherwise not have the time, energy, spoons, oh, yeah. inclination, whatever to to watch four hours a week. That's my job. Uh, I'm an 18th centuryist. Don't try this at home, or no, try it at home. See what you think. But um, you lose when the adaptation. You lose the element of chance and the sense of shock that comes from a chance roll of the dice, and you lose, or you have the potential of losing that layer of. You know, you cannot adapt that moment with Sam and Liam. You can't. There's no way that's ever going to be in The Legend of Vox Machina. There there have to be compensatory pleasures, other kinds of things that matter. Um, I mean, I guess maybe you could add it. Like, you'd have to – You would, what you would do is you would do the thing that they just did for The Legend of Vox Machina in intersperse kind of – um foreshad you'd have you'd have foreshadowing um and you'd have narrative techniques that actual play doesn't have which mm-hmm. is moving back and forth in time right yep, and yep. so the legend of vox machina is drawing heavily from for example kith and kin the novelization that features vex and vax to um kind of draw from as source material in addition and the legend of vox machina can do all of these things because there is a contract with the audience that one, this is alternative canon, but it is a canon that is created by the same people, that is superintended by the same people, the people who created these characters. And thus they are able to get away with things that other adapters can't possibly do. The minute critical role isn't having the cast owners do these kinds of adaptations, it's all done. It's all done. Yeah. 
Um, It's only with the participation and the sense that you're getting more from these people who are somehow palimpsestically also these characters Mm -hmm. uh, that it all works. And And that's another miracle, right? It's an act of trust with the audience that is the payoff of over almost a decade of work um, to create that feeling of authenticity, which is authentic in the way that my classroom persona is authentic. It is part of me. It is real. It is not me in my sweatpants at home. Um, Those are different things. Yeah. Right. That supplemental type of stuff is, is so interesting to me. And one of the things, one of the things I noticed, and it, it's like you said, it's a different medium and the, the, the time thing and the medium that animation is, is yes. such an interesting deal because we are going, we've already seen in the first three episodes and we are going to probably see more the dragons talking to each other by themselves yes. with no mm-hmm. characters present. That is something that just didn't slash really couldn't happen as a yes. DM. I have so many times wanted to just like jump over to another scene and where none of my players Elo were Castle. and just kinda, yeah just kind of <laughs> you know dialogue back with myself because there's something cool in my mind happening but that's not something that you can really do super there, well yeah and there are absolutely actual players that do that right i mean um, the chain yeah. uh, that was exactly. uh, well, i think know, that was a great example that cool shit yeah um, yeah uh, but but yeah i mean i think there are there are absolutely games that can do that. Critical Role can't. And what's really fascinating to me as someone who is writing about actual play and writing more about actual play these days, because Polygon is hoping to expand its... We're, we're moving over, away, not away from the tabletop section of Polygon, but adding on to the kind of curated part of Polygon, the kind of Polygon recommends part. Um, and so... One of the things, and and as a teacher of this stuff, one of the things that I think about a lot is, what do you introduce people to that shows you that shows the the breadth of what can be? And Critical Role is remarkably successful, but there is a limitation to how far they can push it at any given time, um, because every every small move is an act of trust. They're never they can never leave that table. Right. They can never experiment with weird stuff with time, I don't think. Um, there are things that other actual plays can do that critical role can't do because of those kind of layers of pleasure that they've built out that are part of their brand. They can do it when they go to other media, um, but mm-hmm. they can't do it as long as they're playing and however long that is. Um, yeah. And and yeah. so that's been the fun thing about, I mean, I ask people on Twitter a lot. I I beg people um, because I am not only the the kind of senior scholar of actual play. I've of course been watching this stuff for the longest, uh, but also I'm the one who consumes the most of it. I think that's that's fair to say. Um, I'm a judge for New Jersey Web Fest in the actual play uh, category, which means I'm uh, consuming a lot of bite sized examples of people's actual play in video and podcast form. And also I'm in, I'm seeking this stuff out and I'm constantly asking people, tell me what about your show is interesting and new um, that nobody else is doing. And the good ones can tell you that. And there are good ones that are doing the same thing as other people, but it's much harder to get on my radar given that there are thousands. 
thousands of actual plays. Um, uh, or tens of thousands, probably, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you have to be trying something out new. I'd rather look at an interesting kind of experiment, even if it, you know, is a bit of a failure or doesn't work entirely, than have I get PR emails now, and the PR emails are kind of a make or break. Um, anybody who's telling me that the cool thing about them is that they're a group of friends is like, okay everyone is right they either become it in the process of recording yep. it or they were to start and that is not something that's gonna make it's a you great starting play. point but that's right. really all it is anymore. congratulations your table getting along is step one um your audio it's like in the same way that like your audio quality has to not suck because yeah critical roles first episodes sucked in terms of audio but nobody else was killing it with the audio game mm -hmm. at the time so you're not competing against you know 2015 critical role you're competing against everybody and their dog in the mm -hmm. year of our lord 2023 um, and i think that's the tricky part is on the one hand memories are short in this field um and people don't have a whole lot of like if you talk and that's why i'm writing a book about the history of this stuff uh, is to kind of say, hey, this is what's happened before. Um, this, the, these are the pitfalls. These are the, these are the experiments that have been tried. All of those sorts of things. But at the same time, there's also this sense as if very little has changed in seven years, and that's very, very not true. Uh, Critical Role could not survive doing what Critical Role was doing in 2015, mm -hmm. and they know it, right? Mm -hmm, They've yeah you know, in terms of the stress and the taxing and all that sort of thing. Um, everybody's got to kind of keep, you know, moving like a shark um, and growing and changing and experimenting. Uh, and that's where my attention is uh, in, in a lot of ways. So. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's really cool. And I know we could probably talk about CR for, and all that type of stuff for hours. Um, one of the, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, have you or in, in your research and as you've been watching these things, have you seen a direct correlation in the growth of not even necessarily D&D of a system with the popularity and growth of actual plays? Um, I think that the last two weeks, which I don't want to belabor, is a testimony to um, the importance of actual play, right? Um, I don't think Wizards makes this land grab in a world without actual play um, because they've seen other people not only create IP that is loosely based on on D&D &D and succeed with it, they all do it better. Um, uh, Alyssa Vischer has said, and I, I quote her as the Vischer rule now or the Vischer theory, I haven't decided. Um, but she argues that, you know, if you started playing in uh, earlier editions, Forgotten Realms is your mental landscape. If you started playing in 5th edition, there is a very good chance that your mental landscape is at least in part dominated by Exandria far more than the lore of the Forgotten Realms. And I love the lore of the Forgotten Realms. I am, I am a, a Twilight Cleric of Salune in my home game. Um, <laughs> Don't get me started on the cool things about having like all of like seven stars and eyes and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, um, 
but it's I think it's that's really true. And I think that um this year uh we're gonna see uh whether the Forgotten Realms can gain some traction. Um, but it's really interesting to think about like the late latest trailer for DD Honor Monk Thieves. One, you get a whole bunch of reactions, hot takes, um, that are like, oh, Vecna. Like, no, not Vecna. How do you not know that these are the Red Wizards that they <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? Um, this is very, very clear. Um, but what that tells us, right, is that you've got a significant part of the audience reaction that is drawing their understanding of D&D lore from Stranger Things and from Critical yep. Role, right? Yep. Because yep. if if you know either of those properties or both of those properties, you know Vecna. Um, the Red Wizards have not featured in either. Um, and so I think that's a, a sign that, right, like the strength of the wizard's owned IP is overshadowed and 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 literally their news about their tv and film development deal has been overshadowed by critical roles um yep. like i mean they, it, they have it, the brand but they don't have the the wider lore and an appeal an appeal right. recognition right because I, mean, I don't know about the forgotten realms that much i started yeah. in fifth edition my my knowing is exandria like mm-hmm. that's that's a big thing. I know like some of the gods and stuff, the different places. Sure. Uh, I I know a little bit of Forgotten Realms from the Rime of the Frostmaiden campaign that I played in. Right, but right. The and, only and like, information I know is my homebrew world, exactly. Galathria. Like that is my main thing. Exactly. So many people are homebrewing, inspired by actual play. If not playing in the worlds of actual play Mm -hmm. they are inspired to do their own homebrew Um, and it's interesting right because so many fifth edition adventures are designed to get you up to speed on the sword coast and the rest of the forgotten realms um and so it's it's really interesting um to think about the ways in which it just didn't come together right and part of that is we haven't talked about this at all um, the other Wizards-sponsored Chris Perkins-led uh, show, uh, which we've had refugees from but ended in flames and ignominy, um, was uh, Dice Camera Action. I love Dice Camera Action. Um, that was the Strahd campaign, right? It was, it was – uh, Dice Camera Action was the kind of venue for – uh, basically, it was this kind of mega campaign that incorporated all of the new adventures as they came out. Mm, so okay. maybe um, I just would, watched the strong yes, part yes, of it. Yeah. Yes. So so basically, uh, what they would do um, in the kind of early years uh, of fifth edition, which is such a strange thing to say, is you would see Chris Perkins give you an element that was not spoiler filled. Um, to show you how you could play in that particular element. And this is still what, in a, in a large way, Acquisitions Incorporated has been doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to in, to one extent or another. Um, and of course, Evelyn Marthane, uh, played by Anna Prosser, uh, you know, and more recently, Holly Conrad Strix have come back into the fold through Acquisitions Incorporated because yeah. Dice Camera Action was just kind of too hot to handle. 
um, depending on who you ask, people are like every wizard's owned, like fully owned, because they don't own Penny Arcades uh, Acquisitions Incorporated, but every fully um, wizard's owned uh, homegrown actual play has just ended in disaster. Um, you one would hope that that would lead them to finish funding uh, Rivals of Waterdeep, but apparently not, because Rivals of Waterdeep was also doing that work, right? They were founded um, during the first Waterdeep campaign and then would incorporate other elements mm-hmm. as a kind of showcase in that as well. Um, so, yeah, they... This is part and parcel, and this is something that I don't know a whole lot about. So this is me kind of demonstrating my authority by showing my ignorance. Um, There's a lot of internal stuff around, um, you know, Wizards pivot and strategy in terms of how it relates to the community and things like that that are beyond my, uh, my focus, at least at the moment. But it did come hand in hand with... A growing sense, partly because of Critical Role and the Adventure Zone and later Dimension 20, that they didn't need to spend that much money on homegrown actual play. And they didn't need to support the grassroots kind of D&D Live events where they would showcase other creators in the community. They still interview them on Dragon Talk, but and there's a Dragon Talk book that I'm sorry has kind of gotten lost in the shuffle um, of all of this bullshit um, because Greg Tito and Shelley Mazenoble don't deserve that. But uh, here we are. Uh, it's really hard to celebrate the people of the community when it feels like the community is kind of um, uh, the, the, the smoke screen is gone. Um, the, the fiction oh. is gone. A lot of fictions that people told themselves about what D&D was, and I think also what it meant to participate in actual play, I think are evaporating. And I think that's the biggest change that's coming. We were already cruising because of this divestment of, from, of wizards. And there are publishers who are funding actual play. Chaosium is doing a good job in this way. Um, uh, Free League is putting big money into stuff. Paizo has been consistent with Glass Cannon and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But they don't have the as deep a pocket as Wizards Hasbro or the um, reach and, or the reach um and so you've you've got this ambitious middle that was kind of making do and trying to grow and trying to find new ways to grow and the lifeblood has just been kind of sucked out of so many of that those folks in the middle who are trying to make really excellent work um on really modest uh modest budgets um so yeah it's 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 a real shame we were already cruising toward this before wizards kind of shat the bed but now i think it's it's mostly exacerbated unless we get something like a kind of big push from the new orc uh to support actual play as part of kind of an investment in multiple srds and multiple mm-hmm. systems and also yeah. we're, we're we're heading to you know we're heading to fragmentation to a certain amount yeah. uh what what that means for actual play may mean that we gut the middle and we might not have actual play aside from um D uh i i i simply do not know and i hate to predict because Human beings are weird and they move in weird ways. And what I love about actual play is that it's made by it's made by humans, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and even the biggest of them all has committed to thinking of themselves as an independent. Now, 
they very much could change the tide if they divest. I don't know that that's something that's on the horizon for any foreseeable future. Um, Exandria is really important as a linchpin for that multiverse, um, and they and no system that they have announced on the horizon would seem to interface with Exandria in a way that would be a D and D killer. Yeah. Um, so yeah and and i i would not be surprised to potentially start seeing them even even if the even if they keep D D as their main their main core um i wouldn't be surprised if maybe some of the exandrian limited potentially experiment with other systems we've already seen this in dimension 20 uh, in a few few yeah. cases either D D uh D light D mixed with other systems like court of fey and flowers yeah. um or completely different systems like uh was it shriek week um shriek week was uh gabe hicks's um self-designed uh mythic system mm-hmm. um there haven't been that many um because like a, a like you know the because uh starstruck odyssey was um the star wars fifth star edition wars mm-hmm. yeah and uh although yeah i think court of fate and flowers is is one of the big ones because the D is so vestigial as to be functionally flavor um it, when people talk about what's exciting about the system in that game it's the good society mechanics mm-hmm. um which but, is was perfect for that particular Right. And and I've argued and written and I believe very strongly that uh, as someone who is a Jane Austen game expert in particular, that uh, it made good society better to hybridize it with the Feywild because then it's not historical and you don't run into the problems of the Bridgerton problem uh, that uh, you can go as wiki wacky as you want um, while still having the trappings of a Regency. It's very, um, it's very Vrokasigan saga, the Lois McMaster Bujold, which is Star Trek fan fiction that turned into what if the Klingons are also human and they've been marooned for 300 years and turned into Regency people. Um, (laughs) I highly recommend it. A civil campaign is a great novel and, uh, uh, definitely, if you like a cord of fan flowers, that is uh, that is your jam. Um, I digress, uh, but I, I think it's possible that we'll see, especially with Darrington Press rolling out games, we'll see those get highlighted in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when like the one shots are the one shots are done. weird. Um, the one shots used to be far more the place for independent games, right? You know, we can think of the Honey Heist one. Honey Heist, yeah. Um, we can think of one of the best things they ever did in any form is the Call of Cthulhu. Oh, Shadow Cthulhu of the one. Shadow of the Crystal I, got it, I got it up on my second monitor. Like that's yes. that's my next, <laughs> no, it's, my next it, thing. It's, well, and what I, what I love about it is that you can see the early thinking through of the new set that they're going to build later on uh, because that's where they experiment with lighting cues. That's where they experiment with how much of the set do they want to dress and in what ways, all of those sorts of things. In addition to Talos and Jaffe being the ideal keeper for, uh, and, and, and having paid such loving attention to the crystal palace, quite honestly, as a, as a historian, not of the 19th century, but close enough, I appreciate it greatly. Um, he starts it, off with yeah. good evening, children. 
Like that, that was literally like, that's like, oh my gosh, that is such a Talison thing to say. And but it was it, a perfect, perfect. It is, it is interesting to consider the ways, and this makes sense given any number of things, but a lot of their one shots recently have been sponsored by video games. And so have been reflavored, you know, Elden Ring and, and mm-hmm. whatnot um, a lot, you know, and so that's where the money is coming from and the money that doesn't get pushed back in the way that say the infamous Wendy's one shot got yes. pushed back and yes. was scrubbed from uh, the internet All existence. <laughs> yeah. So glad Which I did see it shame though. Because aside from like the fact that it came out at the worst possible time in terms of labor relations, mm-hmm. and I don't want to downplay that um, it's in a funny little stupid system. It and it's yeah, weird. Certainly, certainly, you know, blizzard has Fair enough to say, you know, has, you know, in terms of, you know, abuses of labor, um, you know, so uh, it's it's complicated and it's it's a constant fine tuning of of what the audience will 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 handle. But it is a shame and what it would be lovely to see Critical Role come back to being that potential occasional showcase, not only for other performers in the space, mm-hmm. um, but also for um, other systems. And we'll see. Um, it's possible. Uh, nothing is out of the realm of possibility, especially with Darrington Press involved. And they have, you know, close ties to things like Hunter and Entertainment and things like that. But they've never played Kids on Bikes. They've never played, you know, any of the kind of big games on their stream. Now, of course, mm-hmm. they've played tons of things in their Geek and Sundry days, which, of course, you can go back and watch. You can watch them play with the Jenga Tower and play Dread. You can watch half the cast play Paranoia. And, of course, you know, we've got a set of cast owners who have very different roles in that company. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think – but Dimension 20, I think, is – you. I think you can imagine a scenario in which they're going to be more of a showcase. It's going to be advent- interesting to see if the Adventure Zone um, kind of returns to D&D for whatever they do next. Blades in the Dark is working very well for their style of nonsense. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see – you know, NADPOD just did a Pathfinder explainer uh, on their most recent episode. Um, so – you know, we're the and as the bigs go, so will the ambitious in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I find fascinating is that we still haven't shaken, even with all of the kind of sacred cows or stories we tell ourselves that have kind of been been slaughtered or or you know the veil dashed from our eyes over the last two weeks. There's still that sense of, oh, you could shoot your shot and get on Critical Role, or you can shoot your shot and get on Dimension 20. And the answer, and the reality is, is that, no, you can't. Um, Critical Role is pulling from a very specific kind of audition pool. Um, There is no such thing as a farm team in actual play as a general rule. Um, There are overlapping circles of influence, and the dirty secret is, nobody's performance is an audition tape, an audition is an audition tape, because again, I'm the one who's watching all of this stuff. The reason people follow me on Twitter who are in this industry is because I tell them about the things that are going on so they don't have to watch them and keep up. Um, you know, and 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 that's why I really treasure the people who do you know, watch shows that they're not on with care and attention. And, you know, chef's kiss to Abria Iyengar, who is um, the the queen of us all in terms of nerding out, um, you know, 
who else is asking to for erotic fan fiction of herself that she will read um uh <laughs> and is heavily 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 on tumblr um she, yeah uh the, which i i i adore everything about that woman that's um, another that's amazing. another example of another system because i was just d20 did the kids on bikes and misfits and magic Yes, she did Kids on Brooms yeah. for Misfits and Magic. Kids on Brooms, she, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she incorporated... I mean, she is a player um, who, if you look at what she's doing, I mean, she's doing her fair share of um, of D&D. She comes up as Matt does and as Brennan does through Adventurers League. Like, they put in their, you know, their time at the tables of people who would be very hard to work with. <laughs> um, but... Uh, What's interesting to me is some of the most sterling performances that you can watch a Bria Iyengar do are not in d and I mean, she's an excellent D&D uh, player and DM, as far as I'm concerned. Some people do not love her, her, her love of the rule of cool. And I say to them, why do you not love joy? Um, but, you know, if you watch her in Kolok, hyper rpg's actual play which is one of the last surviving live shows um found it like hyper rpg was founded by zach eubank who was on critical role back in the way back days um and he and his wife malika have are behind a lot of the official DD production in the back in the past have been behind a lot of other people's productions, have been working closely with AMC on their their content. Uh, and Kolak is their their loss leader. They spend an enormous amount on that as their calling card. They do their corporate work precisely so that they can do that. And I hope that they're able to fund another season because every time they get on Twitch, you can watch the impact and the influence ripple through the actual play space because people, even people who don't watch actual play are paying attention to the kinds of innovations in live technology and cinematography that those nerds are doing. Um, and it's a show, it's been the kind of big showcase for what Abria can do as well as the rest of that really stellar cast. Um, but you know, because she gets the tight close-ups, you can see her her moving and and in different kinds of ways. Um, and uh, you know, that's uh, that's and that's kids on bikes. That's a modified version of kids on bikes. And of course, now we're seeing her in um, New York by Night, which is also um, they're live to they're live to tape um, pre-recorded these days because they're doing batch just like say dimension 20. Um, but that is also a really good showcase for performances um, that we don't see a lot because vampire has real people in the world operating and has always kind of laid itself out on screen to facilitate those kinds of interactions. And of course, vampire comes from LARP. And it's and Jason mm -hmm. Carl is is a longtime veteran of the world of LARP, uh, and so knows what embodied performance can do. He's one of the most thoughtful people I I know in this form. Uh, the I I highly recommend if you're looking for something different, L.A. by night or New York by night are are they're, they're very different from any other actual play. Like it's not D and D. I get. <laughs> Again, maybe it feels more real 
in some ways, if that makes sense. Well, and what's really fascinating about the vampire community, because LA by Night and New York by Night are the official World of Darkness like studio actual plays. LA by Night started is one of the others that was able to achieve escape velocity from Geek and Sundry. Um, so if you watch LA by Night, you will see Matt Mercer, you will see Talison Jaffe, um, you will see Erica Ishii, you will see a lot of the kind of you will see Marisha Ray kiss Erica Ishii. Um, you, you'll see a lot of, of of overlap because in those Geek and Sundry days, there was a lot of kind mm-hmm. of hybridity in these kinds of ways. Um, but they were able to kind of go off on their own because Paradox kind of, you know, adopted and nurtured mm-hmm. them um, and and got them through to the end kind of by hook or by crook. And now are being much more intentional and in like saying, we have three seasons. The three seasons can be the first season um, and the second season came out right after each other uh, last year. And we'll have the third season soon. But we've got an anarch coterie, which is very common in actual play because anarchs are the rebellious ones. But then we shift to the to a aspirational Camarilla coterie who are trying to consolidate power. And now they're on a collision course and all of them are going to be in the next season, which is really, really cool. Um, but what's really cool about Vampire is um, they have a shared kind of universe of lore that there are any number of other actual plays that you can watch that are super great that are deeply indebted to Jason Carl's. So if you like that layout and you like that sort of deal um, and, you know, basically what you get is every location in the world can do a city by night right so vancouver by night is one of the big ones uh i am particularly fond of atlanta by night uh elysium is waffle house which is really lovely um (laughs) and it's it's another one of those it's one of it's atlanta by night and vancouver by night are um you know those classic examples of what we think of as the ambitious middle. These are all th- full-time theater and film professionals. This is their love project, uh, their labor of love project that they're doing in a studio now that's in their home, but it used they used to be renting out studio space elsewhere. Um, they have you know in- done the investment in technology. They are thinking very thoughtfully about performance, and they're able to draw because Atlanta is a big uh, theater and film town. Um, from a, a really excellent talent pool and, you know, and they're able to exist in the same kind of imaginative universe as all of the other by night. So you dip into the world of um, Atlanta or uh, Vancouver or Phoenix or what what have you, or Seattle Penny Arcade did there by night with Jason Carl. Um, and, you're, it's always in medias res. Uh, it's always in the middle of things. So you, uh, you're you caught up to speed very quickly. Kolak does this also extremely well. Uh, it's designed so that everyone is equally confused, the long-term audience and the new audience. With Vampire, there's always vampires older than you who know all of the shit that's going down and you don't have a fucking clue. So the players and the audience are kind of equal in their to- in their ignorance. Um, which I think, yeah, those are things that D&D doesn't give you. Um, the ability to not feel like you have to know everything, that yeah. you can just kind of, that the world has existed for a long time. And that's 
I hate coming back to Critical Role, but that is like what Exandria gives you, right? It's like this sense that there's this very long history and now there's a history of play, but every time a new character comes in, they don't know that. Why would they know that? Um, so you've got the and the third season is really trying, third campaign is really trying to th figure out how to kind of have new people in that world along with the Easter eggs and, you know, we'll see how it how it lands but but those are the hallmark like if you want to have a long ongoing campaign and increasingly the budget isn't there to do that and it's a it's a high risk high reward sort of situation um and uh but if you're going to do it you got to do it in a way that's constantly able to bring new people in and that's why dimension 20 doesn't do that dimension 20 takes a different tact which is we're going to tell a story and it's you know still going to be fairly long it's still going to be you know potentially you know 20 40 hours long but it's not critical role it's not 500 hours uh and it uh, feels so more bite-sized it feels well and i mean they've had a short i mean shriek week was four episodes yeah they no, no, I, they, they, they yeah they vary it they vary mm -hmm. it yeah. quite a bit yeah so, so there's a little your... something for everybody misfits exactly. and magic was only four episodes yeah and then they and then they come back to it, but you know you've got these kind of self-contained narratives. I mean, and this is this is what a genre trying to figure out self out through experimentation by necessity does. I am mm -hmm. a scholar of the 18th century novel, and so I can tell you in the comparable lifespan of the novel form before it became the novel, you have a whole bunch of this kind of stuff happening too. Um, you know what it is is anybody's guess. So everybody's going to try different kinds of things and everybody's going to call it something different, right? Like Taylor Moore calls it, um, uh, I think, narrative play. Um, some people still say live play. And I'm like, I don't know that we really need to use that. Uh, actual play is the term I prefer. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I'm sure there are others that I'm not thinking of at the moment. Um, but we will ultimately consolidate around terms um, because they will be th things to to sell by, assuming that the genre continues to survive and one of the things that i'm trying to argue to increasingly broad audiences is that yeah this is something that is uh of a particular kind of pleasure that you're not going to get anywhere else uh and it's and it's worth doing if if critical role if you bounce off of critical role there are five million other things that you can you can watch you can listen to you can you know f find of interest if this is the kind of storytelling that you're interested in. And I think this is a really elemental form of storytelling a in a lot of narrative ways. in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I know we've been talking about a lot of these different, uh, different actual plays. I want to go around the horn. Okay. And I want everyone to do one or two of your absolute favorite that you've watched and why. And we can, we can start Emma, do you do you want to start with? Oh with man! This? Um, or do so, you need well, a minute to yeah. think through the ten thousand? No, no. Things uh, okay. I, I, will, I will preface this by saying that um, I have a deadline tomorrow of uh, the first piece for Polygon for our curated section is uh, actual plays other than D D um, <laughs> that you should that you that you should um, that you should watch or listen to, and I will say. Um, this is my shameless plug coming early. If you care about actual play, if you want actual play to get covered more than Critical Role and Dimension 20, 
this is the kind of thing that we need eyeballs on because I don't get to write more of these and say, hey, these are the best vampire play actual plays or these are the best actual plays to share with your kids or anything like that unless the metrics work on this one. So it's coming soon, that is happening. So um, I am going to cheat. Uh, and I am gonna and and I am going to do the thing of asking for more wishes in some very real way. Uh, so I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say one shot, and I'm gonna say party of one. Um, and I love them. I teach with them constantly and consistently. I introduce people to them. Um, and so I will just uh, kind of give the the brief blurb. Both of these are new system every episode shows. Um, so party of one is run by Jeff Stormer, who just won a whole bunch of awards for, uh, his mini series of Yazeba's bed and breakfast, the new game, um, you know, by the makers of wander home. Um, it was a four part mini series that had everybody from, you know, Brennan Lee Mulligan and Matt Mercer to, you know, game designers who were up and coming, um, all playing the same characters, right? Because Yazebas has a set list of of characters that you can choose from. So you got to see how different people would tackle the same character. Um, and that's an extension of Party of One. And Party of One's conceit is um, it's one person at the table with another person playing a system. And so all of the systems can be played with, they can be played with more than one person uh, as a player, but they can be played um, just as a duet. And you get a tightly edited experience of what it's like to play that system, what's interesting about that system, and you get a complete story in that space. Um, you know, and everything from big things that you've heard of to um, I think they unearthed a My Little Pony role-playing game at one point from the <laughs> attic. Um, it's a real showpiece. Um, so same idea for is one shot James D'Amato's uh, kind of flagship show. And he runs long-term campaigns as well. And he's doing a really interesting thing with PVP coming up soon. Um, sky jousts. But uh, what I love about One Shot is the same principle, only, you know, it's sometimes it's two or three episodes, but it's still a, do you want to get a sense of a system very quickly with players who want who are coming together to tell a story um, and also kind of giving you a sense of how the game is played, um, then you want the, between one shot and party of one, you've got, you've got every system you could possibly imagine, uh, to play, to play with. And some really interesting people that you, um, that are real people, right? That they're designers, sometimes they're actors, but most of the time they're just nerds. Um, but they're lovely nerds and it's, they're, and they're both well, well edited. They're, um, they're tight and useful and I recommend them highly. There's, there's lots more, but you know, you can, you can read on Polygon the rest of the things I'm going to recommend. And the nice thing is this comes out Monday, so we'll be able to link to your article. Hey, well, we'll, we'll see if it's out. Uh, we'll but, see if it's uh, out. We'll, we'll at least set, <laughs> we'll take say, a look. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I can give you the, my, my general omnibus Polygon link where it will definitely show up. There we go. That'll that'll be perfect because you have written several other fantastic articles. It's Polygon. getting weird. Every time there's a TPK, apparently that's my beat. <laughs> <laughs> Dimension 20 called. They're like, we have an episode we think you should watch early. I'm like, what? Oh, <laughs> like, no. why, is this, why is this? What? Oh, oh, oh. no. 
All right, And then ben. three days later, I met, had my own TPK and emailed Brennan. Oh, no. What have you done? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Brennan Lee Mulligan's first ever TPK errored days before my own first TPK. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and... Uh, if I if you'll forgive the digression because we've been critters no, no, no. All, all night. Yeah, yeah. Um, the TPK started going down, and I had talked to Abri and I could talk to Matt Mercer about TPKs they'd experienced to kind of do background and and be Dave and be like, you know, does this often happen? What do you do? And Matt was like, well, I don't, I haven't had many uh, TPKs, but I had this near TPK. Let me tell you about it. He describes the scenario. I sit down two days later at my home game table and I'm like, oh God, this is happening to us. <laughs> this is the exact scenario. So, yeah. And like, and Matt was like, oh, the two last people survived by running away. So I, I'm, so I get on Twitter DMs and I'm like, hey, m- funny story. Um, I'm sitting at my table and <laughs> oh, we're about yeah. to have the same like near TPK. And then about five minutes later, <laughs> As my furbolg is dead in the dirt, oh, I added. No. Uh, so, correction: <laughs> we actually had the TPK. <laughs> oh, like, oh no! Oh no! So yeah, oh, I have great. the dubious distinction of of being able to say like, I talked to all of these people about TPKs, had my own, and then like got condolences from the like the Infinity Gauntlet of. Oh, oh my gosh! Incredible! Yeah. Incredible! Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And I mean, very sad for you, very sad for you, but amazing. Between this and the OGL, I have the opening and closing anecdotes for my book. Like, I'm not complaining. (laughs) I mean, if you, you know, when uh, life gives you lemons. Indeed. Yep. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's that's fine. You're going to. We do. We talk a little bit about usually our games at the end of the episode. So we might. Oh, no, I overshot it. Yeah, no, no, we, no, 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 we I want details. I want details. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. I want the details. Uh, ben, what about you? What what is what's what's your what's so, your top of the top? I don't get to watch a lot of uh actual plays or listen to a lot of actual plays. So I, like I could be like, I like critical role in Dimension 20, which is all we've talked about. Fine. But <laughs> I mean fine. well, first of all, I have to say my absolute uh, favorite of everything is just you know, Vox Machina, just the first campaign from Critical Role that hit me like there's no tomorrow. The the sense of adventure and the the high fantasy and everything like that, it it clicks with me to the point where it's like, this is what I like to play in when I'm DMing. You know, it's a high fantasy world, uh, you know, completely homebrew, all that fun stuff. Um, I will say that the Misfits and Magic was absolutely fantastic. Um, if you haven't heard that, Abria does the most amazing job as well as the rest of the cast as well. And uh, what, Brennan is what, what's new Evan Klimt or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which best character. Um, but aside from that, I do have to say that one of my absolute favorites um, one shots, uh, maybe it was a two shot. I think it was a one shot though, was um, way back when uh, world of Warcraft battle for Azeroth came out. Uh, Matt Mercer did a celebrity D and D session that was kind of based around what an island adventure was supposed to be, which in the game, it didn't even translate into that at all. And I got, was that the one with Terry Crews? Yeah, it was with Terry Crews. This is his first time doing it. Uh, Marisha's part of that as well as, you know, a few other people. And it is an amazing one shot 
where, I mean, Matt homebrewed a lot of stuff to make it fit with the World of Warcraft, like, you know, um, classes and stuff like that. But it's just a really fun adventure because he has, you know, the the Horde on one side, the Alliance on one side, and then they meet up for like part, like the the, the third act on it. And it was a, just a ton of fun to listen to. And uh, if you want to hear someone like being introduced to D&D and he's just super excited, Terry Crews is that person because he's just <laughs> all in and just so happy. Uh, and then, oh, I just remembered Relics and Rarities was also a ton of yes. fun. Yes. Yeah. That, that was great. That was great. That was only, what, five episodes? Um, or but, eight uh, episodes or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Some, something short. Uh, Deborah Ann Wall did an amazing job. She's, she's uh, so DMing. good. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it just all the different pieces and, and how each episode fits together and stuff, ton of fun. So definitely recommend all of those. That was a Geek and Sundry one, too, wasn't it? I don't think I, so. It, it it was in that weird transition. It was in point. the transition time because it was like um, live action-ish where they had a lot of props they went into like the other room to the table yeah. and there were like two parters with a new guest each time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Charlie Cox got to play. Oh, that was great. Which was so much fun because it was like a little mini daredevil reunion. And, mm-hmm. but Deborah Edwall, she is an incredible DM. Oh yeah. Like I would love to play a game with her. Like she does. It's just so like descriptive and evocative but uh on top of that she too deals. she wrangled kevin smith which anybody who can it's do no that small, is an amazing no dm <laughs> but yes it is it is the tail end of i mean geek and sundry did produce it was it. okay um yeah uh and and deborah Wall has gone on to do more kind of independent mm-hmm. uh kind of features in those kinds of ways mm-hmm. um but uh yeah that's yeah that that's one of the last good ones I believe she's currently doing a, a demi plane campaign. That sounds right. With their team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she does. Stuff. She does great stuff. Yeah. Demi plane is, is doing great stuff. That's, that's a whole another topic. Uh, <laughs> it, true. Like you could do true. like all about digital stuff, but yeah, they're doing, they're doing great stuff. So, I mean, that leaves just you, Ryan. I mean, I know you yeah. consume a lot. There's no way that we've covered everything that you've enjoyed the most. So, uh, what what's on your plate? I have I have some specifics. I have I have some specifics. Um, first off, it is it is the weirdest. Th- it is the weirdest premise in the world. So, this is a Dimension Twenty Crown of Candy. Oh, I started it is watching the that. Weirdest premise in the entire world. They are all fruits, vegetables, and meats and dairy. Like it is, it is so ridiculous. It's candy land. It shouldn't work. It shouldn't work. And not only does it work, it is one of the most interesting political intrigue shows I have ever watched. And one of the most emotional shows I have ever watched. Like I was like both my wife and I were tearing up <laughs> to freaking vegetables several times during that series. It was, I, it was an absolutely, I don't know. I still don't know how they did it. Like it shouldn't work for all intents and purposes. It shouldn't work. And it, and it does. And it's incredible and it's amazing. And of, of all the D 20 stuff, that is one of the ones I just highly, highly recommend. Um, 
A second one is Xandrian Limited Calamity. Yes. I I oh, consider just that the, just the opening scene in that is worth watching. I consider that not just like one of the best actual plays I've ever seen. One of the best media things I've ever seen, period. It is the the cast is incredible. You have the rich world that Matt has has created, supplemented by the incredible imagination of Brendan Lee Mulligan. And the the stakes and drama that has come with it, even though, especially if you're a a critical role fan, you know, kind of how it's going to end. And it was was billed as a tragedy. So yeah, it's billed as a tragedy. And, but it's, it was, I like, just from a DM perspective, I watched in awe of how he moved that along to a result that you knew was going to happen but he didn't know what they were going to do in between, at least to some extent. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it's, it was the, it was the counting clock. It was a really interesting kind of experiment. <sighs> and it's, it's what Brennan knows how to do because he has been kind of trained under those kinds of constraints. It's a testimony to him that he could still do it live to tape. Um, even though you know, w- with no with no hope of editing, right? Yeah, no editing. Um, and uh, I mean, I will say that I love calamity. I think it's really important. Um, I was talking about it with some TTRBG scholars because we're going to be screening some stuff for folks uh, in Germany uh, in this summer as part of some scholarship that we're doing. But I will say, if I had to pick one, the best critical role has ever done um i would say it's liam's quest uh so yeah liam o'brien the master of making people feel things creates for his friends the ability for them to be friends as children and then annihilates himself in a meditation on any number of things. I mean, it's almost it's it's art precisely because it is difficult to watch, and it is mm-hmm. it is that that thing that you can't do in any other medium. You can do calamity is going to be a great whatever the fuck they turn it into with this series. I can't imagine that they're not going to adapt it. It needs to be a movie. It needs to be an animated movie, right? Um, so you know, but I don't. And I think it will adapt extremely well. You can't do Liam's Quest is the perfect actual play because it mm-hmm. shows you it is a crafted experience for people uh, to play and to watch people play. Yeah. Um, and it's got the seek, speak and say voice, um, which is hilarious. Um, and I will also say, uh, speaking of ambition, that Dimension 20's current season um, is a similar kind of uh meditation on the form reflection on what it means to tell stories and tell stories that have multiple canons and is also just doing really weird cinematography that they haven't tried before um they're kind of pushing the envelope every season but this is you know where when when technology 
and story and performance all and subject all come together in these kinds of ways, something really beautiful happens. And I highly, highly recommend that one too. I'm cheating because I'm the guest. And I do what I want. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, we were, we literally talked about this on Twitter back and mm-hmm. forth. Uh, and you also said shadow of the crystal palace. Was yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, shadow of the, the crystal palace. Ones. I teach. Um, I, cause I don't think I could bear to teach, uh, Liam's quest. I don't know that that would land with students. Um, but, uh, and it'll be interesting to see, um, when I was first teaching, uh, was when Miss, uh, well, the TTRPG class was a Miss Fits and Magic had just come out and Exandria Unlimited, uh, the very first one was, was playing and, the minute they went to buy Rodin, which is so informed both by Laredo, Texas, and by um, the kind of larger idea of the South, I knew that I had to have my students take a look at it. And luckily, we were able to talk to Amy and Abria about that, uh, which was also an incredible value add uh, to, to think about how they were thinking about the South. And I've written about this as well, and you can find it on my website. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, what's lovely about this forum is every time we we could have this conversation in another couple of months and I'm and there will be new stuff to be like, holy shit. Um, what 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 in God's name? And I promise uh, I'll bring more next time too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh so. I think uh and I think kind of to to end it off just a little bit on the news that happened today, uh this is kind of the culmination. We we talked about the transmedia. Uh, of Critical Role, they just announced literally today, this morning, uh, as we record on Wednesday, that um, they are signing a deal with Amazon to do not only a season three of Vox Machina, but a season one of Campaign Two. And yeah, they have a multi-year um, a deal, uh, presumably for the rest of both animated series now, and a first look film deal, which means the right of first refusal for any film film projects that get developed over the next couple of years. Number of years was not specified, at least in Variety and other media that have come out yet. Uh, we do have confirmation that Titmouse will continue to be the animating house. Thank God. I love their animation. Yeah. It is just are- stellar. Yeah, they're very cool. Um, and they're, um, I mean, there's a bunch of critters in that house. So uh, it's very exciting. Um, you know, s- several people wished it into being or at least guessed it. And I think that's a, you know, uh, was a pretty good guess from the critical as well as the audience reaction to The Legend of Vox Machina um, and this enduring popularity of The Mighty Nine even over a year after. Um, seems like it's in be de- de- been in development for a while, um, you know. Given given everything, it's highly likely that it's been in development for quite some time. So it'll be interesting to see when you know whether we're going to have to wait until uh, the Legend of Vox Machina wraps its full, however many seasons it's getting before we get the Mighty Nine, or whether we'll get them at the same time. Which that would be very interesting if we. That's did. that's a lot. Um, but, oh. you know, uh, I'm really looking forward to Linda Kodega got to sit down with Matt and Marisha. Um, she literally flew, you know, across the country and back, I think, for more or less that, as far as I can tell. But io9 will be putting out the full version of that interview, which is about 35 minutes long. 
where Matt and Marisha talk about the future proofing of critical role. And as I think I've said in a couple of times already, or at least implied as we've been talking, a critical role has always been extremely um, forward thinking about what the possibilities are and preparing for to be ready for, to meet those possibilities mm-hmm. if they could happen. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, Meta Pigeon was registered in 2019, uh, that LLC. Uh, yeah. If you ever want to see like what's going on or what's about to go on with Critical Role, what they're, what, uh, what trademarks they're registering is really useful. That's how you might have known that Chetney Pakapi was going to be Travis's next character almost a month <laughs> ahead of time. Because uh, mm. that was one of the names that they registered. Um, there's no, uh, there's been some, I've been seeing some squealing on Twitter and Discord about uh, what feels like an inevitability of film. I don't know that we have any way of knowing that there's inevitability of film at this point, but at least they've got an incubator and hopefully a safer incubator than say Netflix uh, for for this. (laughs) I just finished Warrior Nun and I'm very angry. (laughs) I I divested from Netflix a while ago and I uh, see no reason to lament that quite frankly. Uh, So, I mean, I access in other kinds of ways. I have friends with Netflix, so I'm not completely separate, but uh, yeah, they, they're, they're nasty, increasingly nasty habit of, of canceling things. Mm -hmm is uh is not something to inspire confidence in in new material so yeah it, the, unless the you're cobra kai yeah the third <laughs> yeah the third season announcement of of um legend of vox machina was big uh was was great it means we'll get the end of the chroma conclave um and that's what it mm-hmm. seems. It seems like the Chroma Conclave is going to span two seasons. But you yeah. can't do Vecna, it in one. Vecna. We've uh, we've got confirmation actually that the Chroma Conclave okay. will have um, will be this season and into next. It um, needs to be. It's yeah, it's yeah. A massive yeah. arc, and you've got to give each of these dragons their moment, right? Because they were it was such a big deal, right? With each of them, it's such a big it's it's, it's such a massive arc. What's going to be interesting is, um, you know how much and what's going to be compressed and all those sorts of things thereafter. Um, obviously the, the campaign has its own compression built in uh, that could become expansion, right? We could get a montage of that one year later um, in interesting kinds of ways. Who knows? Um, I'm really curious about what happens with the mighty nine treatment, um, which of course is already well underway mm-hmm. uh, because notoriously that campaign is an open world sandbox that didn't really have the kind of narrative railroad mm-hmm. that Vox Machina did. Yeah. And so it's going to be a real test of the audience because I think Critical Role has a very clear sense of what they're going to do. Um, but uh, to see whether the audience is willing to go with what I think is going to have to be more um, surgical moves around to get stuff done. Um, and uh, so they'll have to take more liberties to an- adapt th- that. that yeah. For sure. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, to be honest with uh, what episode two of, of the second season, they've already shown how they can incorporate and change the world and like meeting of new characters and everything in different ways and still be oh, very right. successful. So, oh, for sure. No question. I mean, I think one of the one of the fascinating things is, right, like when you've got creators who I mean, Liam O'Brien has said multiple times that he considers 
the actual play like a writer's room mm-hmm. um and then they took it into the, mm. the other writer's room yeah, and yeah. there's an enormous amount of trust and goodwill built in and also matt has has said you know this is a separate canon um it's its own thing um and so we've there's a lot of trust in the audience and i think as long as um the narrative beats remain the same or at least the the kind of overarching character arcs and drives mm-hmm. remain the same um we're not going to see too much repining um it'll it's it just it because it is it is a campaign that veered so widely from what matt thought it was going to do as soon as they found that beacon and presented that beacon um, <laughs> or the ship know. thing where yeah. they they stole a ship and changed the entire yeah. course. Yeah, of no, I mean you can play any number of times where it's oh like, oh gosh. wait, you did what? Um, that 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 changed the trajectory, and also the the fact that they steadfastly refused to be big damn heroes in the mm-hmm. ways that Vox Machina. By the time Vox Machina was Vox Machina, they weren't the shits anymore, and so um, they, you know. There's a little bit of like the rejection of the call, you know, if you want to go all heroes journey on it, but not much. Um, the Mighty Nine went kicking and screaming all the way to the end in terms of that <laughs> sort of arc. And we're cu- and it's interesting how with campaign three, we're now seeing a kind of return to. And and I think one of the things I've been saying, and I've said this on Twitter, but we'll say it here because um, who can access Twitter these these days? Um, the thing to keep the thing to keep an eye on with campaign three is campaign three is the only campaign that has been played entirely by this cast with the awareness that there was a significant non-zero possibility that this could be a common animated series. Um, and I think you can see a difference and I think we might see a difference in length for that reason. Um, we're certainly seeing a difference in structure, I think, in interesting kinds of ways. Um, and it's both informed by the fact that the audience has the legend of Vox Machina, and so they have narrative knowledge, even if they've never watched the actual play before watching the third campaign, but also by the reality of, hey, there's an animated series. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll, and we're, and if they're the cat who ate the canary and have been for years, then they've known the Mighty Nine is being adapted. So they they had to have been going into this. I I think it's fair to say I am not a mind reader, and my silly story about Matt Mercer notwithstanding, I do not interview them on the press junket about this kind of thing. So I know fuck all. I know what you know, um, but I also know kind of you know the elements of how these things get produced, and I am a narratologist who watches how uh, stories are built. So there's something different going on, and one of the contextual differences going on is this could get animated, and everybody knows it. So that's yeah, yeah, that's super super interesting, super super interesting. And that's this is this is where I alluded to before. This is where my hopes of the two two and a half hour exe calamity movie uh, animated movie getting adapted come from. It's possible. All things are possible. All things Critical are possible. Whole land could happen. I am a descriptivist, not a prescriptivist. 
<laughs> I describe what happens uh, to the best of my ability, and that has le led to a happy life. <laughs> and also a very great episode. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, my much. gosh. I, I cannot express enough how wonderful it has been to have you on and just talk about all this stuff, especially oh, yeah. a, a topic that we don't get to cover that much because we we're not not on the fringes necessarily but not like deep into it we have we have a very uh a very limited view mm -hmm. i think would probably be the best way to say it so having someone who has the full scope is is we super super interesting all of us uh to use a extremely ableist uh metaphor we are all the blind men examining the elephant uh <laughs> I just have spent more time running the perimeter of the thing uh, for for better, for worse, and for uh, uh, questionable uh, uh, reasons. I, I, I can only justify it by saying I spent all of my 20s reading really long 18th century novels. So, you know, <laughs> it was it was I was due a change at some point in my life. Yeah. And it, now you are watching and listening to the novels on on the um, regular much 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 longer <laughs> <laughs> so, the super 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 novels um well as we as we kind of wrap up we want to give you a little spot to promote anything you haven't promoted yet uh where can people find you uh what uh where can people find more information on your stuff you uh, you mentioned polygon we'll have a link to your uh your page that has all the articles you've written but yeah, yeah anything you want to shout yeah. out so my the the part of the internet that I own that no one can take away from me is EC Friedman, that's friedman.com. Uh, so you can find my scholarship there. You can find just about everything ultimately linked there. Um, I write for Polygon as M. Friedman. Uh, so we'll have a link to that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter for as long as Twitter continues to exist in this fallen world. Um, at free, that's F-R-I-E-D-E. -E. And you can find me on YouTube and Instagram at Critical Prof. Awesome. And we will have links to all those in the show notes, of course, on dndiscussions.com. Uh, also, uh, for community content, one of the biggest things I've been doing uh, recently, just because time is is soup, uh, is finding maps for my own games uh, because when you do VTT, it it takes time. It takes time to set all these these things up. And map making, while something I enjoy, is not something I often have the extra time for. Uh, so on our community content shout out this week, I wanted to just kind of quickly shout out. I know we've mentioned it before, LostAtlas.co. Just it's a search engine of maps, both nice. free, free and paid. It is absolutely incredible. Uh, some of the maps you can buy directly on there. All just about all of it goes to the the map creators. Um, but there's also a ton of free ones uh, that you can find in their search engine as well. And it is massive and it is wonderful. Uh, I also wanted to shout out more Vold Press uh, and their Patreon. They make absolutely amazing maps. I have used several of them. I will be using uh, several more of them for an arc coming up uh, for the, the kind of end of arc for one of uh, my campaigns as well. 
So we will have links to those. If you're looking for maps for your BTT experience, definitely check those out. And then finally, as we do before the end of all of our episodes, we usually talk for just a few minutes about what we are doing in our games. So Emily, I want to start with you. Please tell us about <laughs> this TPK that you subjected your group to. Oh, I didn't do it. I'm not the TPK. Oh, it wasn't you. It I'm wasn't you are DM. So that you were subjected to. No, I was subjected to. So Oh my um, goodness. So I, I play with a group I call D and D and Dads plus me. Uh, it's mostly historians. Uh, I am a literary historian uh, and we have a theater historian. And then we have people who are like military historians and historians of the Cold War and someone who's an expert on the history of early modern prosthetics. It's a fascinating <laughs> table. Highly recommend. Get historians at your table. It's really funny. Um, and so our forever DM who does not want to play ever, because then how would he have an excuse to buy more miniatures? Um, <laughs> oh, I know that feeling. Yeah. yeah. He, God bless him. He runs us. We are a table of eight. Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, I have props to him. My, my first table was 17, but that's a different story for another day. Um, so we were a full compliment, uh, right before Christmas. And we have been nominally getting ready to play Storm King's Thunder. And the reason why we were playing SKT is because we had bought the big platinum uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist box as a gift for our DM because we're adults with grown-up money. And once you have an eight-person table, it becomes a reasonable investment. Yeah, yeah. Is this the Beetle is... and Grimm's mm -hmm. one? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, but the challenge, of course, when you play with dads is when you are a parent of a young child, an open world campaign is not recommended. Uh, so we decided to put that on ice, including my beautiful, wonderful artificer who is about to get a robot pangolin. Um, she got it for Jasper's game day and played uh, with, with Amy Dolan on a pancake game. Um, but uh, so put that away and we created what was our most kind of like backstory laden group? We actually had a session zero where we knitted everything together. We pulled out the Forgotten Realms map um, and figured out like the little like Indiana Jones dotted line of how we all came together. <laughs> oh my and my, gosh, friend, so cool. the, my friend, the head of the theater department, who as will not surprise you at all, is a huge fan of Liam O'Brien, decided to create a furball ranger who was basically Batman. <laughs> and so he and I were furbolgs. I was a cleric. Um, and uh, I decided to go on a pacifist run. I was a peace cleric with no offensive capabilities. Uh, and our whole family, our whole clan had been killed by giants because, of course, we're leading into SKT. Uh, and so the rest of the party assembled and we'd been traveling around doing backstory homebrew stuff from other uh, pre-fifth edition stuff that our D&D, &D, our uh, DM really wanted to play around with. So again, I cannot stress to you enough, we had not gotten to Storm King's Thunder yet. <laughs> again, we were playing so that there would be less prep for our DM. Oh my god! <laughs> because it's so fucking linear. All right. Uh... So we've been playing for, oh, maybe about a year uh, at this point. Uh, we are an XP table. You get XP if, if you have attendance. So I had just gotten to level five and was very excited about it. 
had all these cool new abilities, finally had an offensive spell to speak of that made sense for my character. <laughs> and we are yards away from fording the river at uh, uh, in the Troll Skulls. And a bunch of ogres come and we split up. And oh, no. yeah, the wizard, the gnome wizard with half a minute of hit points uh, runs away from the rest of us. Um, so it devolved very quickly, right? Because peace clerics can get people back up, but only if they stay reasonably close to the peace cleric. Um, they're not quite as good as Twilight clerics in that respect. Um, but it was a massacre and it was a ma and so at the very end it was me and the wizard the, the wizard was hiding in a crevasse and had managed to you know get to the end and i had no spells almost no hit points and two ogres were right in front of me my fallen friends right below and I thought about what did Matt Mercer tell me his players did to survive this? And I and I was like, oh, they ran. So I was like, I'm going to turn and I'm going to try to run. But I couldn't risk an attack of opportunity. Um, so I had to disengage instead of dash. So they caught up with me. But not before our baby owlbear and weasel were able to be scooped up by me and gotten out of harm's way. So we all died. <laughs> But we were fine with that because the animals got away. You died so they could live. Indeed, indeed. So I died nobly to 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 keep uh, Stig and Talk from from dying. Uh, we have told our DM, you know, well, this means we can never kill owl bears again. And he was like, "That's going to be very difficult." <laughs> um, so that was fun. Um, uh, but yeah, so we, that was right before we all went away for Christmas break and we were like, and so I was thinking both, what is Brennan Lee Mulligan going to do with his TPK? What is my DM going to do with my TPK? And um, we hear, oh, we'd like you to all make new characters and we'll just start over at the start of Storm King's Thunder <laughs> and you might get hints from the last, and, and theater professor um revenger furbold batman um was disappointed by this and so i i had said hey could he be a hollow one could we go full could we go full vax on this um and ultimately the dm decided to because he had he was like the narrative heart like he was the giant revenger he decided oh no you mysteriously resurrect you get a really cool magical item you don't understand and a weird unicorn tattoo and but you're level one and all of you are level one and normally when one of us dies you come back as the lowest level that the party currently has yeah makes sense and so i was like oh this sucks but at least i'll be at level four and so that was the gut punch moment was like oh i have to go back to level one and and we just all died and like what am i gonna <laughs> do and so i devoted my entire break to being the min maxer i never thought i was and so i was like oh you're a monk here's how to optimize your monk oh you're coming back as a you know do you know and just like figuring out what the like i was like what is the broken build that yes. the DM will yes. allow uh for the for the cleric and i was like 
oh, I see what we're doing because we've been allowed Eberron, uh, even though we're in the Forgotten Realms, uh, for weird steampunky reasons I'm not clear on. So uh, I roll up with like, so can I have, um, uh, you know, a, a mark of passage human uh, twilight cleric? And he's like, yeah, sure, that's fine. And I was like, okay, good. Um, great. So uh, just I just need a clarification on the rules. Um, when I get to cast my Twilight Bubble, does it cast Twilight? Because I'm going to fly in level six and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, and uh, also, and also, do you, how many horse miniatures do you have? Because I have, fine, I have summoned Steed as a ritual in about, oh, a couple levels. And, and I have Leon's tiny hut. You know, and, 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 and. <laughs> so I try not to be the asshole, but I was like, we're not dying this time. All of us, I, and Mark of Passage Human, for those of you who don't know, also gets passed without a trace really early, which is good because half of us were like, I'm going to cut shoes the chainmail because we would like to not die. <laughs> Yep. Uh, so we came clanking into Daggerford uh, about uh, two weekends ago, um, you know, and we are wintering over uh, and, and in search of, of, of adventure. Uh, it is it will be a very interesting experience. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, and what's fascinating, right, is we were then told that maybe somehow our characters would make cameos, like our old characters, like our old characters are dead. They're either dead or they're not dead. If they're dead, I don't want my character to come back as a piece, a DMPC. Like, no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is the, this is the recent, this is the recent trauma. And then I run oh an 18th gosh. century campaign where I am the DM and nobody ever dies because we're playing, you know. Uh, Witch Light, which is, you know, a beautiful, a beautiful game for when you're playing and running a game for a bunch of professors who never want to hit anything. And very early on in playing together, they were fighting gnolls and one of them cure wounded a gnoll. And I'm like, they're going to eat you. <laughs> uh, so perfect. Like, so a nice palate cleanser uh, in terms of, of D&D games. Love it. Very cool. Love it. Oh my gosh. That is, that is absolutely fantastic. It is. It, it's funny just hearing the, the, the trauma of the TPK is, Oh God, what can I build next? That won't die. <laughs> yes. Well, what's most fascinating is, you know, so many of the people that I play with are tenure track faculty who are, you know, who are playing this, but like, they are not inter they are interested in playing the game they are not interested in experimenting with new things so it's like our no monk is going to no monk this time she's trying drunken master growth our dwarf barbarian is going to dwarf barbarian trying some wild magic this time great <laughs> um and so you know what's fascinating is right like okay so who changed anything anything anybody anybody about mm, three of us <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh it's it's the like the comfort food yeah i mean i think that there's and that's the thing that always reminds me uh this table reminds me that there's many ways to enjoy this game mm -hmm. right and and some of them not all of them can coexist at the same table and it's a beautiful thing um every table needs the person who keeps the inventory every table needs the me who does the play-by-play -play annotation of exactly where we are in the you know initiative order um 
I don't know that every table needs somebody going, what's my motivation? But we we, we have one. And it's fine. <laughs> Two, really. Um, and, you know, and we, and we can all coexist. And I think that's a good reminder for the hobby that we so forget is like, yeah. there's no one way to do this. Exactly. Um, if you're yeah. having fun with your friends and if you're not, then you have to have a conversation. You have to talk with your human voice. The end. Yeah. <laughs> Lesson over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, that is it is a good lesson. It is a it is a good lesson, and uh, it's very it's a conversation worth having because yeah. always sometimes sometimes you can fix it, and sometimes you figure out that it's not the right place, so. and you fix mm -hmm. it in a different way. And you fix it in a different way. That's can, right. There are other people who are willing to play. There are forty five million people who allegedly play this game in the world. You can find other people. That's right. That's right. All right, Ben. What do you got? What do you got going? Well, one, I do not want to follow that story because that's, <laughs> no, that's really why, great. That's why, that's why I went to you. <clears throat> well, that's too bad because I haven't played. So, oh, frick. yeah, uh, oh, we gosh, due to lots of really busy January stuff, as well as sickness, as well as the holidays and stuff. We, we haven't played since that uh, holiday one shot that I did. Well, the one shot that's still mixed in and is canon in the in the campaign. But uh, yeah, I, I did a modified version of Frosty the Snowman where we had to go and get the, the hat back from uh, um, a, 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 an evil human who's part of the, the summer uh, court in the Feywild. And yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're playing this Saturday, though, and I am super excited to get back into it. God. And I am... Well, I haven't told you, Ryan, what's going to happen once it starts up, but I will tell you off air because I know that some of my players listen. Even though this oh, comes out on Monday, yeah. in the off chance we don't play, I still want it to be a surprise. No, no spoilers. Exactly. No spoilers. Uh, so yeah. that being said, though, uh, Ryan, would you like to uh, go after Emily, after her fantastic story about everything no. that's been going on? No, I <laughs> I, I mean, thankfully, thankfully, I have I have something that can kind of slightly compare just a tiny bit because uh, one of my campaigns just uh, last session was uh, the end of an arc, and it was a big boss battle that I had been prepping for for a long time. They're at the bottom of this jungle temple. This corruption has has seeped in, had has sapped all the natural magic from this continent. Uh, uh, basically this thing called the heart of the jungle, this giant rainbow colored gemstone sits in the, the middle of this large, like underground forest uh, area almost. And the actual source of the corruption has been given form biomass plant life growth vines uh, into this like vine dragon, basically. Uh, and so our druid uh, who died once uh, and was kind of resurrected uh, partially due to this uh, part of the jungle, basically reaching out and being on its last legs and asking, asking for help as he was the only one, he was not from the continent. So he could still access his natural, natural magic um, from his goddess. And so it, it basically culminated. They got through this cool little maze thing and they're there. Uh, and I made a, I, I homebrewed a bunch of a bunch of mechanics for it. Uh, there was the the giant uh, kind of vine dragon that had its own things, its own legendary accents and such, and had its own layer actions. 
Uh, but then there was also uh, the Heart of the Jungles layer actions that I made a D6 table and I let the players roll every time the layer actions happened right after uh, the bad guys layer action. And so they got to roll the D6 and see if the Heart of the Jungle would be able to break through the darkness enough and emanate enough power to assist them. And it actually ended up working, working really well. It was a, it was a tank of a boss, uh, but there was a cool mechanic where the boss could devour and they could either roll a strength saving throw to get out of it, or they could choose to fail. They did. They got swallowed. And inside the stomach of this thing was this black beating heart that emanated this necrotic energy. Uh, but they found out if they attacked the heart, the heart did double damage, like a, like a guaranteed crit with lower AC. However, the heart on their turn pulsed this necrotic mm. energy. So it started out like 4d6. And then if they stayed in there for more than one turn, it became 6d6 mm. and then 8d6. And so they had to choose when they wanted to get out if they got in mm. and they had to do a certain amount of damage to break a hole through to get out before it healed healed that that hole that damage back up so it was kind of like a, a it was an interesting game uh and i gave one of its legendary actions was this like plant transport so it could basically teleport up to 60 feet so i was trying to keep movement very important it had this uh bonus action that it could do when it did one of its vine whips that if they failed their saving throw i would make them roll a d10 and then it would fling them five times their d10 roll feet backwards and if they went more than like 25 feet or so then i actually rolled some damage on it too and they and they fell prone so it was i one of the things i really like to do is try and build in a lot of movement I don't I don't like fights where it's just you walk up, I hit something, walk up, I hit something. I like to keep it dynamic because that usually helps the creativity as far as strategy and stuff goes. And it it ended up being a, a really good fight. Two people went down. Uh, and so it was a little a little scary uh, for a bit. But the druid got the killing blow, which I thought seems fitting. Was, was so cool. It was just very cinematic, cinematically appropriate. Um, and one of the layer actions for the heart actually healed the players. These, these they're level eight right now, 2d8 health that they got to roll. They got that layer action right after the monk went down. Ooh. And so it, it like the heart's magic ended up reviving the monk, which was so cool. And, and it is just, everyone was super pumped when, when that happened. So uh, they were they were able to to destroy the corruption, and now they're basically will pick up next session in the aftermath of that and figure out what the heck they want to do uh, now that they've got that done. So cool! It was it was a good session. Very cool. Oh oh my goodness! I looked at the time, and I was just <laughs> like, this was one of the most enjoyable like two and a half hours that I have uh -huh. I have ever spent. Um, but as all good things do, uh, this must come to an end. So once more, Emily, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It's My been joining us. 
Uh, it has been uh, wonderful to talk to you and get your insights uh, and learn, honestly, a bunch of stuff uh, about uh, a topic that we we both are very passionate about. So thank you so much again for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. And with that, Ben, why don't you tell everyone where we can be reached? You bet. Um, if you have any uh, questions, comments, or want to tell us some of your favorite um, actual plays that you love watching, listening to, whatever, send those to dndiscussions at gmail.com. We love hearing your emails or reading your emails because, you know, we don't do text to speech or whatever. Um, but if you do have something that you want to recommend that's in a, a shorter form, we're probably on Twitter. Uh, we are at dndiscussions. Uh, if you're looking for Ryan himself, he is at TBKZord. Uh, if you're looking for me, I'm at Ben Bumhofer. And if you want to hear our own actual play, uh, we do a podcast called Plus Five to Hits. Uh, we are slowly going through Rhyme of the Frostbaden, and uh, weird, crazy stuff happened. And then we played again, and crazy stuff is happening. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm excited. I can't wait until our next session because we've again got some major decisions to kind of, uh, you know, make and figure out what's going on with that. So check that out, Plus Five to Hit. Um, as for this show, though, DN Discussions, you can find us on dndiscussions.com, where we will have our show notes and links to everything that Emily's told us, um, as well as every other episode that we have ever done. Believe it or not, it is actually online on the Internet. And of course, if you do want to listen to any of those episodes, we are going to be on your favorite podcast player of choice or essentially the same way you're listening to this right now. But uh, again, Emily, it's been fantastic. Ryan, I love doing the show with you and uh, everybody until next time. Be good to each other. Thanks, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>